This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The founder of this company, 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house. He's, you know, he's kind of an important guy. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company and it went into business, I think, three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond. And they are people that listen to this show. They are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. Realestateagentsitrust.com. You're listening to The Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. Billy Hollowell here with Chris Field, and this has sort of been an exciting and a fun week. Chris is so tired of hearing about um, uh, my this book. eyes are just rolling to the back of my head. <laughs> you keep talking, and I uh, just about pass out half the time. Well, there you go. So we we yeah. actually have a guest on the line though, and we're going to be talking about um, this book that I wrote. It sounds weird to say my new book because I'm not trying to sound whatever, but but this book that I was fortunate enough to write, and really to, I can't take any credit for it because it sounds weird uh, to normal people too, Billy. So you're well, not it just you're not alone. weird. I know, but that somebody allowed me to write a book. Yes. But um, this particular book, in all seriousness, I really it's the experts I spoke with that really wrote the book practically for me because they were so knowledgeable and gave so much great information. And one of those people, um, author Jeff Kinley, who is one of my favorite people to interview for the book, he is on the line. He's the author of Wake the Bride. How you doing today, Jeff? Doing great, Billy and Chris. Good to be with you, man. Hey, thanks for coming on. Well, look, you have been <clears throat> you have been a great resource yeah, throughout the book writing process. I could ask any question to you, and I've interviewed you for The Blaze numerous times, um, but you were always able to kind of help me understand uh, pre-tribulation theory and sort of some of the critiques that have gone on responding to some of those. And so you know, we're having you on today uh, to talk through that. With the release of the Armageddon Code, there were three survey questions that uh, were commissioned through LifeWay, and we asked a thousand pastors across the Protestant Christian spectrum what they believe about the millennium, the Antichrist, and the rapture. And so there's some really interesting things in there that we could talk through. But I wanted to start because I think there's so much confusion, which is the reason that um, I wrote this book in the first place. And I know for you, it's it's probably one of the reasons why you do what you do to try to help people understand uh, what various ideas are when it comes to the end times. And the first question I would have for you, and then we'll get into some of the, the heavier critique, but tell me what, and I already know, but I, I want listeners who don't know to understand, what is what is the rapture? And, and then take us through the pre-tribulation view and why you hold it. Yeah. Well, the rapture, we, we call this, this event the rapture. It refers to the event where Jesus Christ comes to, uh, returns to earth in the air to rescue his bride, to take her to heaven with him, the church, believers, before God then unleashes his wrath during a time we call the, the seven-year tribulation period that's outlined primarily in the book of Revelation. And so the rapture just refers to that that specific event. Now, it's been well pointed out that the word rapture is not in, actually in the Bible, and that's correct. The, word, the English word rapture is not in the original Bible. Of course, no English words are in the original manuscripts of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. But I would also point out that you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The word um, millennial kingdom is not in the Bible. The word um, you know, incarnation or Christmas or Easter, none of these words are actually in the Bible. But what we do is we have things in the Bible that we believe, doctrines and beliefs that we hold to, and then we sort of try to, well, is there a word that can sort of capture that and, 
and we attach words to those meanings. Uh, and of course, as we look at the scripture, we do see that the, the event that, that is described, there is a word that God uses in the Bible to describe this word rapture uh, that was trans- translated from the Greek to the Latin, and that's where we get our word rapture from the Latin word rapturo from First Thessalonians so, uh, so basically, yeah, the rapture is this event where Christ comes to rescue his bride before he unleashes his wrath on planet Earth. Now, we get into this big debate about the rapture, and this is something that I think, I actually, and I don't know if you would agree with this, I think out of all the end times elements, this seems to be one of the fiercest debates, if, if not the fiercest debate. Would you yeah. agree with that? Well, I would agree, and I think part of the reason, guys, is because of the fact that it has been sensationalized, it's been misrepresented, uh, it, there's been a lot of speculation, you know, back 88 reasons why Christ would return in 1988, and then they just <laughs> yeah. keep, you know, updating their, uh, their, their, you know, their, their calendars, and so, you know, because there are a lot of people out there that have, I think, taken advantage of people's fears, they, they preyed upon them. Uh, for this type of doctrine, that it's kind of giving it a bad rap. It also doesn't doesn't help that there have been some pretty cheesy movies made about it, too. I was actually raptured in the new <laughs> Left Behind, as you know. Um, I and, remember that, yes. And Yes, and, but I do Billy, think it is... Go Billy, ahead, Chris. Go ahead, Billy, get your joke in. Billy slips that reference in. Anytime the <laughs> Which, word rapture comes up, he he points out that he was the star of the Left Behind movie. And it was such a big role that you probably would have missed it if you didn't. You know, yeah, blink and um, you'll miss it, right? There you go. My clothes had a bigger role, which is what I said the other day when we talked about this than I did. Um, but, well, so when we talk about a pre-tribulation rapture, uh, I think the first question is, well, what does, what does that mean? So the, with, the, with the pre-trib, I, and I guess I'll make it sort of a bigger loaded question, uh, tell me the difference between a pre-trib and a post-trib. Uh, and then I know there are other tribs that we could talk about, but tell me that difference between the two. Yeah, the pre-trib view, the pre-tribulational rapture view, refers to Christ returning prior to the tribulation beginning. A post-tribulational view uh, says that Christ will return at the end of the tribulation, and sort of the the the, tri- the uh, rapture and the second coming sort of become a simultaneous event at the end of that. And that view then would also indicate that Christians will go through uh, the judgments of God on planet Earth during those events outlined in the seal, bowl, and trumpet judgments in Revelation. So, uh, so the difference between the two views is one, Christians are rescued. The other Christians uh, have to endure the wrath of God. And then you have other ideas like the mid-trib, and you have sort of the the partial wrath, and then you have, mm-hmm. so you, you can kind of go through all these, and it's it's really interesting how people frame them and how they come to them, and are you being yeah. raptured, are you going through the world's wrath and Satan's wrath, but not going through God's wrath, and are you, right. so we don't have to spend a lot of time on all on all that, but the one thing that I found fascinating when we, we commissioned the survey I mentioned, a uh, thousand pastors, the biggest proportion, which was 36%. Uh, that kind of stuck out to me because that's that's a big chunk. It's almost four in ten pastors, yeah. but it's it's not everybody, right? Thirty six percent saying they were they were pre tribulation. Uh, the second biggest group was twenty five percent saying the rapture is not meant to be taken literally, uh, and then you have post trib was the third group at eighteen percent. Um, what do, what do you think when you hear that thirty six percent were pre trib? You know, how do you receive that uh, proportion? Well, I, I am very encouraged by that, considering the fact that when you kind of divide up all the denominations, you have pretty much the Presbyterians, uh, whom I would align myself with in many, many areas, except for eschatology, 
uh, they would make up a pretty big proportion of the amillennial uh, position and the fact that the rapture is really more of a, a spiritual type of thing or a symbolic type of thing, or they would include it with, you know, the coming of Christ at the end. So I think it's kind of an encouraging thing. You know, one of the things I did in my book, Wake the Bride, was I devoted two chapters to talk about the rapture for that very reason, because I know there are a lot of pastors out there who are like, you know what, I don't even know what to say on on these subjects. Uh, you know, a lot of pastors have not been to seminary. Uh, they've, you know, they're bivocational. You know, 80% of churches are under 200 people. So some of those churches, you know, they have bivocational pastors. So I think a lot of even people in leadership are still struggling about, you know, where am I going to land on, on this whole issue? And uh, I think for that reason, you probably had some of those pastors kind of take a middle ground. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you talk about none of these, there were there were 12% mm-hmm. who said none of these, and they're not sure. So that was yeah. kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let's just look really quickly. 73% of Pentecostals believe in, in a pre-trip. They, that was the biggest um, proportion out of any denomination. Then, then you have, uh, let's see, 61% of Baptists, only 1% of Lutherans. Uh, mm-hmm. saying pre-trib. So I mean, nothing really earth-shattering, but the crazy thing, and I know I had talked to you about this before I wrote the book, this data was nowhere to be found. I mean, nobody had really asked this question, and I know mm-hmm. there's there's much more work to be done here, and it's hard how you, wor- how you word questions and how you sort of look at the issue, but it was good that we were able to sort of get a baseline on this, I think, to, to sort of work from moving forward. Um, but let's Let's get in, and Chris, you jump in at any point uh, if you uh, want to. I wanted to ask a question for, clar- for at least one sure. question for clarification. One, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, listen, I've read the, the, the Left Behind series books, you know, that were obviously made into a movie that Billy starred in. Uh, <laughs> I've read, <laughs> I've read those books and, you know, enjoyed them. I'm not going to say where, where my views lie on the, on the rapture thing, at least not right now. I just, I'm curious and I do know where I stand, but I'm curious your thoughts on if, if pre, if the pre-trib rapture view winds up to be incorrect and the and the rapture happens somewhere during the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation how do you know when the tribulation has started what would be the sign of that or is rapture the only sign of this the coming seven year tribulation no that's a, that's a great qu- question chris uh i think we we could know even if the rapture does not happen we can know when the tribulation begins because uh scripture talks about uh, the Antichrist uh, brokering a peace treaty with Israel, and uh, and that will be, I think, one of the sort of the, the the red letter dates of the tribulation that initially begins. In fact, uh, many prophecy scholars say that there could be some degree of time between the rapture and actually the the official beginning of the tribulation, uh, because that begins with uh, the Antichrist making a peace treaty and uh, establishing peace and peace and safety. He talks about in Thessalonians. So, so I think, yeah, the, the rapture itself is just sort of the beginning point, but uh, the actual, you know, origin of the tribulation begins at that other point. All right. That's, that, that was a great question. And one other thing before we get into a few of the, the deeper critiques here, um, and we've already, t- this is a topic we can go on for hours on, so I'm going to try to be brief about it. But when we talk about um, dispensational, uh, premillennialism, dispensationalists, and then we talk about new covenant, the- or I'm sorry, covenant theology, can you talk about any of the differences there? Because I think that's another place where people get really lost in trying to understand yeah. just God's relationship with mankind and, and how it's structured. 
Yeah. Actually, you know, the word dispensationalism, it almost sounds like a skin disease. I don't know, you know, you know what you're really talking about. Do you have this or not? Well, I don't know. Um, and, you know, depending on who you talk to, uh, you know, when you say, are you a dispensationalist? Well, that, that's a hugely loaded question. It's like saying, well, you, are you a Calvinist or something else? It's, what do you really mean when you ask that question? And obviously, I've been asked that question a lot. Um, and the seminary that I attended, that I graduated from, Dallas Theological Seminary, is known as one of the more uh, heavily dispensational schools. Um, but dispensationalism, if, if people, if your listeners have ever heard that word, just simply refers to the fact that throughout history, uh, there have been, there's been a progressive revelation of God to mankind. In other words, God didn't give us all the scripture at once. He, he gave us almost like a wheel of fortune thing. He kept turning over vowels and letters so that we could know more and more about him as the scripture was written in prophets. And then, of course, Christ came and then the, the, clo- the close of the uh, New Testament. But dispensational just simply means that there have been many different periods of time where God had, has related to mankind uh, based on certain content of understanding and a content of faith. In other words, Adam didn't know the name of Christ. He just knew, well, God slaughtered this animal so that I could have my shame covered up. And so I put my faith in him for that provision of sin. Uh, Moses, the same way as he wrote, David uh, knew more than Adam did, but he didn't know the name or the timing of the Messiah. And so as you go out throughout history, you have these different eras of, you know, the, the era of Adam and Moses and you know, Noah and David. So we all have this different content. Of course, now we have the completed revelation. And I always say, even to uh, my Presbyterian friends, well, you know, you believe at least two dispensations, the old covenant and the new covenant, where we had a certain degree of knowledge there, and then we had our completed content of faith in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so really, no matter where you stand, just simply means that there are uh, different periods of time where God related to mankind based on the content of knowledge. But I'll be quick to to point out, guys, that the basis of salvation has always been, from the Garden of Eden all the way to today, is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Whether or not the Messiah's death would be in the future, whether or not it was happening in the midst of them, like they were in the Gospels, or whether it happened uh, post-resurrection. You know, you look back, we look back by faith. Uh, David had to look forward by faith. So the basis of salvation was always the shed blood of Christ. It's just that the content of our faith was a little bit different in terms of what we understood. So Old Covenant, New Covenant, those are the two basic ones. So essentially, your definition of dispensationalism, or not definite, an an analogy would be, for for leches like me, uh, it's like a progressive progressive slot machine. It continues to build and keep building. I was just saying, what do you even mean by that? I'm I'm not a gambler. (laughs) I don't even know what's happening here. What what does that mean? Well, it continues. The the prize continues to build as you as you continue to win, and the prize continues. Never mind. It's a progressive. Never mind. Well, the, I, w- I would say that to that, Chris. I mean, that's a good illustration. I would say the prize was the same in the garden as it was as it is today. Hmm. However, it's almost think of it like a dimmer switch in a room. It's like you come in and it's off, and you just gradually begin to dim, you know, to to raise the light level. And I think that's what was happening over progressive revelation of the centuries is that God was just raising the light level. Uh, but the basis of our salvation has always been the same. It's just that at, all that Abraham knew was, you know, God was providing a sacrifice. All the Jews knew in the Old Testament was that we're slaughtered this lamb uh, in anticipation of the one day that the Messiah would come. Hmm. Uh, but the content of their faith was just incomplete in that regard. Right. Let me let me start to ask you a couple because we've already taken up a lot of your time, and I have I want to ask you know, two or three of the big critiques of 
pre-tribulation rapture theology. And one of them, and these are very specific, but but this one is this claim that, you know, the, that revelation sort of gives us a lot of the big elements, the, the notion of the tribulation, the notion of a millennium in Revelation 20, all these different pieces, but that it doesn't include a rapture and that if there was a rapture, it would be in there. How do you respond to that critique? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. I think that when you look at the book of Revelation, you see God portraying the church in a certain regard. And one of the things about biblical interpretation and and hermeneutics is the fact that we consider what's called the analogy of faith. In other words, we look at all of Scripture and not just some of Scripture. For example, when, uh, when James said a man is saved by not just by faith, but by his works. And then Paul says, no, it's completely by faith apart from works. You know, we put those two together and we understand what he meant by that. With Revelation, what, what we do see and what we don't see are two different things. Uh, we don't see the church from chapters 4 through 18, while Christ is addressing the church in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, she's absent. In fact, in, in the first three chapters of Revelation, I think the word church is mentioned some 19 times. And then it's completely absent until... Uh, chapter 19, where we return with Christ from heaven, and then the church is mentioned again in in chapter uh, 22, and the bride of Christ uh, in chapter 22, verse 17. Um, But I would say that the portrayal of the book of Revelation is that the church is absent through that. Obviously, that's not the only evidence of the church being absent in the book of Revelation. We go back to uh, the promise of Christ and that whole bridal motif in chapter 14 of John, where he says, I'm going away, but I will return to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Uh, And then also the pattern of of deliverance throughout uh, Scripture, where we don't see God unleashing his wrath on his own people. Uh, And so as you look at what's happening, and when you really do read the chapters in Revelation 6 through 19, uh, this is a horrible time to be alive on planet Earth. Uh, And the, the thought that God would subject his own people to this sort of anger uh, that he has for them when the Scripture tells us there's no condemnation, uh, and First Thessalonians tells us in chapter 1 uh, that we are not destined for wrath, but we are rescued from the wrath that is coming. And the whole context of Thessalonians is the end times. Um, and then, of course, the really the, the bell cow passage there is First Thessalonians chapter 4, which I'm sure we, we may get into. Uh, but for those reasons, I think we see that the Church is absent from the Tribulation. Now, I'll say this. A lot of times people say, well, gosh, the rapture is just an escapist, you know, philosophy, it's escapist theology. Uh, You guys just want to get out of the hard times. And I don't think that's true at all, because, you know, right now, as we speak, the Christians are being slaughtered all over the world. Uh, We have had it. We've really gotten a pass here in America, at least up to this point, uh, having a pretty easy time. But as you look at the world just historically and what's happening right now in other parts of the world, Christians are not being rescued from wrath. It's just not. It's just God's wrath is what they'll be rescued from, not man's wrath. So, so does, I think does, that's one of the important points. Does the seven-year tribulation is the whole seven years considered to be God's wrath, or is that only a portion of it? Because I, I, again, going back to, and I know it's not a theological uh, book, but it's a it's a set of novels, but it's based on a certain worldview or a theological view. Mm-hmm. Those left behind books. I remember there being like. Like the, it divided, they divided it into three and a half years and three and a half years, and one was called the wrath, mm-hmm. and one was called something else, and I don't remember what the it was. great, the great. There's, I, I have heard yeah. tribulation, then the great tribulation is sort like of the last. One, yeah. one is God's wrath, and one is, uh, is one is man, almost a mankind's wrath. God allowing a mankind to put wrath out on, 
good people or I, I, don't, I don't even know, but it, it seems yeah. to me like the whole, not, not all of what we consider to be that seven year tribulation. Would we, would we say that is God's wrath on people? Like the, the whole antichrist thing that he's the one who, who is the problem mm-hmm. and God allows him to be there and whatever. I, yeah. I, again, you're talking well, to a, you're talking to a dummy here, right? So, <laughs> no, and that's the that that right. right question. Is that's very, it's very easy to uh, you know to view it that way. One way to kind of look at it is this: when you look at the seal, the bowl, and the trumpet judgments in Revelation uh, six through nineteen, you look at how that, those, those are combined. Uh, obviously, one of the things you see is that it, it is horrific the things that happen. I mean, things that have never happened on planet Earth, which is one reason why it's very difficult to understand why someone would say that these events have already happened sometime throughout history or even in the first century. So those, those views are, are pretty much laughable. But on the other hand, you look at the tribulation, like you say, when you look at these judgments, there's debate as to when these seal judgments actually begin. At what point in the tribulation do they begin? Some people argue for the fact that they only begin uh, at the halfway point, while others say, no, they begin trickling in during the first three and a half years. Now, what is interesting is, is that as you look at these judgments, you do see, like birth pangs, they kind of pick up speed as they continue on. So there is a sense in which they are building to the end. But as to whether, when they actually begin, there's some debate in that. Uh, To your other question about, you know, when does God's wrath actually begin? You know, part of the the understanding that we have of of the tribulation is that by God allowing the Antichrist uh, to rise on the earth and begin to take control He's called the man of sin, the son of perdition. He's one of only two people that Satan actually gets to control personally, one being Judas, the other being the Antichrist, is that that in itself is a judgment. Hmm. Uh, another judgment on planet Earth is the fact that First uh, Thessalonians 2 tells us that, that the restrainer, which I take to be the Holy Spirit in, in the uh, indwelling church, will be removed at the rapture. In other words, removing all of the um, the dam that's been holding back sin all this time, that's going to be completely removed. That's another judgment on planet mm-hmm. Earth uh, relating to Romans 1, obviously, is that when God gives a planet over, or gives a person over to their own desires, that's a, that's a form of judgment. So, so yeah, you can look at judgment sort of in different kinds of, of judgments. There's judgments where God removes his influence. There's judgment where God allows a wicked ruler to rule over people. And there's judgments where God actually sends things like hailstones and demon locusts and, you know, fire from the heavens type so, thing. So it comes in, in different ways. So would you consider the rapture to be one of those forms of judgment where it's pulling, That would be would that essentially be the pulling out of the dam? And if so, wouldn't that then indicate the beginning of the tribulation? Well, it, it would in, in some degree. I understand what you're saying there. So, yeah, I mean, I believe it would, but I, the actual event where Scripture says, well, this sort of, you know, kind of begins it is more with the Antichrist. But I think in a sense it does begin with us pulling back. I mean, look at the world right now as it is, what's going on in our country today. Yeah. I mean, I read just a few minutes ago where uh, President Obama is pushing now for a national monument or a national park to be, to be yeah. erected uh, to, for, for gay rights activists or for, or for the homosexual community. And I just go, wow, is that a judgment on mm-hmm. America that we have a leader who is now opening up the floodgates of sin uh, for these things to happen? Um, think of what's going to happen when all of the Christians and all the people that are speaking up for decency, morality, and really radical concepts like a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Can you imagine that? Right. You know, when those people are gone, there are literally no voices left for 
sanity, for moral sanity. So that in and of itself will be uh, a form of judgment uh, in the tribulation. Um, can, can I ask? Can I ask another question? Because this relates to what he's talking yeah. about. Is that right? So do do you believe? Do you believe that people during, if the rapture happens at the beginning, and we've got the seven years of tribulation, will people be able to accept Christ and receive his forgiveness during that seven-year period? And if so, if the belief is that Christians shouldn't have to go through the wrath or promise not to go through the wrath of God, well, would they or should they get, for lack of a better term, zapped up into the sky too? What's What's the... What's the deal for, for people in those yeah. seven years? Well, the rapture refers to the church, and the church the church age ends at the rapture. Okay. In other words, the church age began at the beginning of Pentecost, and all those who have come to Christ from Pentecost to rapture are part of the bride of Christ. Those who will come to Christ during the tribulation will not be a part of the bride of Christ, although they will be saved, but they, they in essence, miss the train for protection okay. uh, that God was leaving the station. Uh, before his wrath came. And the answer to your question is, I believe, Chris, that many, many people will turn to Christ uh, during the tribulation. In fact, we see that in Revelation. Well, the portrayal that we see there is that not only that many will come to Christ, but that they'll suffer uh, by being beheaded uh, yeah. because of their faith. Hmm. And and several times you have these souls that are before the throne of God crying out, Lord, how long before you avenge our blood? Uh, and so God says, just wait a little bit longer. This judgment is coming on, on earth for that. So many people will become Christians, and I think it'll happen basically four different ways. Uh, the first way is the fact that when the rapture comes, uh, that's going to be the, the uh, for lack of a better term, the oh crap moment for humanity, mm-hmm. where they realize these crazy Christians have been right all along. I think a lot of people fall to their knees at that moment and give their, their hearts to Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, as I said, they'll have to pay for it with their life. Uh, but there are three other ways that people will come to Christ. Uh, scripture in Revelation talks about the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will be risen up uh, to preach the gospel. There will be the two witnesses who might take to be Moses and Elijah uh, who will preach. And then the Bible says, uh, bizarrely, there will be an angel flying in mid-heaven uh, announcing the gospel to creation. So even during the tribulation, we see the grace and love of God just saying, you know what, I still love you, humanity, but I've got to give you this judgment. Hmm. So yeah, many people will come to Christ, and some of those people, um, many of them, will be uh, martyred for their faith. All right. Now let me let me go on the second big critique, and I've heard you speak to this before, but this is probably the number one critique, though, of, of uh, pre-tribulation rapture theology and, and almost every other type of rapture theology that isn't a post-tribulation rapture. Uh, the notion that this has never been taught before, and this is the, what, what critics will say, mm-hmm. never been taught before the 1800s, around 1830. It was a construct that really was popularized by John Darby and um, and and really has just grown since then, and there was no sense of it before that. How would you react, respond to that? Well, a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, it's it's become um, popular to, you know, to kind of criticize the rapture. I have a whole chapter called Grounding the Rapture and Wake the Bride where I talk about it. But I think a couple of things to keep in mind is, uh, number one, in any doctrine, no matter what we believe, we have to ask the question, not when has, when has it become in vogue, but when is it taught in the Scripture, if any? So the question is not when it has become popular in our culture, but does the Bible actually teach it? And so to get the answer to that question, we really have to go back 
to Scripture to find out what does Scripture believe. And if, by taking that same argument, though, you could also say, well, during the uh, Middle Ages, during the, the reign of the Catholic Church, I mean, you know, salvation by grace through faith was really not taught for many hundreds of years. It was all a works-based salvation. Then all of a sudden, in the 1500s, here comes Martin Luther. So you could say, well, I guess, you know, salvation by grace through faith is really a recent doctrine because Luther just, you know, kind of uncovered it. Um, in the past hundred years, uh, there's been a huge resurgence of a, uh, a defense and a belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. And so that, in a sense, has become, you could say, a recent doctrine. But as I say, I mean, with any doctrine, we have to go back and ask ourselves, what does the Bible actually say? Uh, I will say this, that it's early as the first century uh, in the Didache, which was a, a teaching, a summary of the teaching of the apostles, uh, we have a sense of an imminency of Christ's return taught. Uh, even in the fourth century, we see that as well. So I don't think it's really a new doctrine. So we just have to go back to, again to the Scripture and say, what does the Bible actually say? And that's where we get our belief system. Well, very good, very good. And let's see here. I may, I may have one more for you. I just wanted. I'm, I'm looking over my notes to see. Yeah, I wanted to hit the bigger ones. I think that's definitely the biggest, uh, the biggest critique. Um, okay, so obviously, First Thessalonians four. This is where a big piece of um, rapture theology uh, comes from. Hank Hangraff, who's a big criti critic of all of this, as you know, um, he says that is not talking at all about the rapture in First Thessalonians, that that is actually speaking about the hope of resurrection, and it should bring comfort to people uh, because it's talking about resurrection. How do you react to that critique? Well, I would say that, you know, it all it's all based upon your hermeneutic or your approach to Scripture, and if you approach a passage looking at it in its its literal, grammatical, historical, contextual uh, context there, then you come to certain conclusions. Because, you know, the Bible wasn't written by morons. It was written by people who understood... Uh, Chris, Chris was to... not involved. Chris, Chris <laughs> was, was not involved in the writing of the Bible. I'm barely allowed to read nope. the Bible. <laughs> No modern podcasters were involved in writing <laughs> scripture. <laughs> Make that perfectly clear. You know? uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, here's the Apostle Paul. I mean, he, he's no lightweight. He, he had a you know a, a graduate degree from the Harvard of his day, taught by Gamaliel. I mean, this guy was a heavyweight uh, communicator. So he put his sentences together uh, very meticulously with great thought. And of course, you know, we believe the Holy Spirit was superintending his writings. When you look at that passage in First Thessalonians chapter four. Uh, the main verb there in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 17, is the word caught up. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what does this word caught up really mean? What is the context picturing here? I think what you have to do is not only look at the word itself and the grammatical construction and what this word actually means, which means to literally snatch someone up. It's the same word that was used uh, when Christ uh, ascended to heaven. Revelation uh, talks about it that way. Same word that Paul used when he said, I was snatched up in the third heavens in Corinthians. Uh, and it's the same word that was used when uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch was witnessed to by Philip in Acts chapter 8. It says he disappeared, and he was, you know, found himself somewhere else. Exact same word, harpazo, which is where the word rapturo comes from, or rapture. So I think what we have to do is look at it in context, and then consider the greater context of Scripture, and to see what other passages do we have in Scripture, what other portrayals do we have, and I think clearly what you can see when you when you put a um, you know an overview of this belief 
you know, into the Scripture, when you look at it in Scripture, you see that, that it is teaching a rapture. And I think one final thing on that, too, Billy, is, is to understand that the nature of prophetic material uh, in Scripture is that the closer you get to its fulfillment, the more clearly it becomes understandable. And we see that with the Old Testament when they prophesied of the Christ, and that's one of the reasons why the Pharisees missed the Christ is because they weren't applying it to their present day. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is walking on the road with the two uh, disciples from Emmaus, and he actually rebukes them, and he says, you guys should have understood prophecy better. You would have known that I was to come and be crucified and rise three days later. Uh, but you weren't paying attention to Scripture and how it relates to your day. Uh, you just thought it was something for back then. So I think the nature of prophecy also helps us understand these things in light of the greater context uh, of the times in which we live. So look at the grammar, look at the immediate context, look at the greater context of Scripture, and then just look around at what we're seeing happen, and we go, you know what? Not setting dates, but at the same time, uh, it sure looks like things are about to happen. Well, Jeff, this has been great. Chris, do you have any final uh, questions? I, I do. Have, I had one, and, and that is, um, I, assuming, to me, this is not essential to my salvation, though I, 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 mm -hmm. I, I do consider it valuable. I, I consider it very interesting and intriguing. Uh, again, I, I'm assuming that you would agree it's not essential to salvation. If it isn't, what's the importance of discussing this, and what's the importance of... Because when we have debates, our goal, our hope is to not only to inform, but hopefully to sway people to our side. So if you have debates with people about the pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, no-trib debate, you're hoping to sway people to the pre-trib side. What? Why is that? Why is why is your view an important view for for Christians to understand and and to maybe adapt okay. to adopt? I mean, that's a great question. Chris. I know. I, I know. Think number one, you have to ask yourself the question: What is the point of prophecy to begin with? Uh, Twenty eight percent of the Bible was prophetic at the time it was written. Obviously, God thinks that prophecy is an important thing. So we have to ask ourselves, regardless of where we end up landing on some some of these issues, we still have to ask ourselves. You know, is prophecy important for my life today? And I believe that it, that it really is. The second thing is, is that if some of these things could be fulfilled in the near future, then it certainly is important for us to find out uh, what we believe and, and what God says about the times in which we live. And then the final thing is that, you know, these views, um, some of these views sort of cancel out one another. You can't, you can't go to heaven in the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation and in the middle and at the end. So something is going to be right. Now, you're absolutely correct. It has no bearing on salvation whatsoever. Uh, the thief on the cross went to heaven. He didn't have a view on eschatology. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. At the same time, uh, we have to make sure we don't swing the pendulum. You know, one way would just be to, to put a litmus test on everyone and say, well, if you're not pre-trib, I can't talk to you. You know, but swing it the other way to say, well, none of this stuff really matters. Well, Hey, Revelation is in the Bible, yeah. and it's, it's like Psalms and Proverbs and Colossians It's in the Gospels. It's there, and it's there for us to study and read. In fact, God promises a blessing to those who do read and study it. So it is important, uh, but at the same time, it's not going to cause me to not be able to have a conversation with Hank Hanegraaff or to fellowship with others who don't take my view. 
And you had it, you un, you know, unwittingly had a conversation through this book anyway. So <laughs> you, you all did. Um, and, but I do think that is that is, uh, and I know Ron Rhodes uh, has has done the same thing, really trying to break down um, all of the views, and he comes from a very similar perspective as, as you do. Uh, well, listen, we really appreciate you coming on, and yeah. everybody, make sure that you go out and you get uh, Wake the Bride. At check Jeff's book and, out. What's oh, your website, oh, Jeff? It's jeffkinley.com. And there I, you go. Jeff and I'll Kinley. go. And I'll go ahead and say this, so the Billy doesn't have to. And go get the Armageddon Code because Jeff's interviewed for this book too. <laughs> I agree. Go buy that book today. <laughs> I'm very proud of Billy Hollowell and excited to be a part of this man. I'm going to be singing your praises. Good job, Billy. Well, thank you very much. And maybe, maybe when I write the Revelation Code, you can come and be a part of it. I have no clue if I'm actually doing that. And right now, I hope I'm not. But if I do, <laughs> the thought of doing that sounds exhausting. But if I do, you're definitely going to be a part of it. Um, thank you sounds so great. much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, guys. All right. founder of this company 10 years ago was trying to sell his house. He's, you know, he's kind of an important guy. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company and it went into business, I think three years ago. Their deal is their word is their bond. And they are people that listen to this show. They are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. Realestateagentsitrust.com.